0: Greetings ladies and gentlemen I'm Jason Zelda here today with video number two of the Answering the Atheist video series. I want to thank those of you who tuned in to video number one where we answered four of the ten questions. I didn't want to drag it out too long because there's a lot of information that you guys need to have and it's very easy to get caught up in a situation like this and end up making a super long video that nobody really has a lot of time to watch. So I wanted to stop it at four on the last video I want to thank those of you who took the time out to watch it as of right now nearly a thousand views of that video so I'm thankful for that we're gonna move on now to video number two of the series and in this one I'm going to attempt to answer his last six And I think it should be easier to answer these last six because the questions as you'll notice tend to get weaker as he gets closer to number 10 in many cases the questions that they're asking has nothing to do with God so uh, we're going to deal with those as we get to it. We're not going to waste any time for those of you who are not familiar with the format as to how this atheist presents his questions. What he'll do is he'll present a question, he'll often give an emotional response and then he will give what he says is the Christian's response. But if you have an atheist giving what is supposed to be the Christian's response then you would expect that we Christians are going to be made to look as bad as possible and that is the case as to how he presents his video so what i wanted to do is i simply wanted to give a proper christian response so that you would know what the real answers to these issues is rather than what they say we're going to say you'll actually hear from a christian what the answers are and as i always do with the videos that i put together it will be backed up with heavy documentation and things you can look up for yourselves and research for yourselves so you can know that I'm not making it up because the bottom line for me is I want people to believe the King James Bible. I want them to believe in the God of this Bible. I want them to understand the God of this Bible. And when you're listening to atheists or if you're listening to people who are involved in various different cult groups, you're going to find out a very wrong and skewed view of who God is. This King James Bible straightens it out so you can know who he really is. So we're going to jump right into this by answering his next question what i'm going to do so that nobody claims that i'm taking him out of context i will play his entire question his entire emotional reaction and what he claims is going to be the christian's response and then i'm going to come back and give you the real christian response we're going to be starting at question number five which is where we left off question five why is god such a huge proponent of slavery in the bible And why do all intelligent people
1: abhor slavery and make it completely illegal? You have to come up with some kind of weird
0: rationalization to explain it. Okay, so he asks, why is God such a proponent of slavery? Do you know that you cannot read the King James Bible and walk away believing that God is a proponent of slavery? But you can with the New Versions. The so-called new modern Bible versions that I've preached against for nearly 20 years now have gotten to the point where an atheist and others can pick them up, read it, and actually think that God is a heavenly slave master because that's how the new versions are written. Let me explain to you what they've done. In the King James Bible, it would use the word servant. Servant. The new Bible versions tend to scrap the word servant and use slave instead. Now, here's the difference. The servant, if you have a job, you're a servant on that job. You're not a slave. You might feel like it sometimes, but you're not a slave on your job. You're a servant. Servants have rights. If you get sick, you can call in sick as a servant. You get tired of the job, you can quit and go somewhere else as a servant. Nobody's forcing you to go there. Nobody's forcing you to work there. The slave, on the other hand, does not have rights. The slave is forced against their will to do things. The slave has no say in the issue. The slave cannot quit when they want to quit. And the slave is forced under penalty of punishment to do what they do. When you take the word of God and you rewrite it as the new versions have done, and you remove servant a bunch of times and replaces it with slave, you completely change the complexion of the Bible by doing that. And it's wrong. And I've told people for years the purpose of these new Bible versions has nothing to do with making the Bible easier to read and easier to understand. The purpose of these new Bible versions is to destroy Christianity from the inside because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So what happens if you change the Word of God? You change what people are hearing. And when you change what they hear, when you change what is written here, you change the faith from the inside. Because as Christians, all we learn about our faith comes from the Bible. So when somebody comes along and decides to change the Bible, the next generation that's raised on these new Bible versions are going to be raised following a different God. Because the God of the King James Bible and the God of these new versions are not the same God. It's not the same. I can give you plenty of proof. It's not the same God. You look at the New International Version. I can ask you, who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Anyone who knows the story knows it was Jesus in the fiery furnace with them. My answer? Prove that from the NIV, from the New International Version. Prove it was Jesus in the New International Version. You can't. Because the New International Version has changed that verse. Where in my King James Bible, Nebuchadnezzar says the fourth man is like the son of God. You trace the son of God through the Bible, who are you going to run into? Jesus Christ. But the New International Version says, the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Is Jesus a son of the gods? No. It's a different God. So you got to be careful when you're dealing with this. So here we have the new versions here using this word slave all the time. I want to show you just how bad it is. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you so you can see it. This is what you find out when you look into these new Bible versions, how many times they use the word slave. The New King James uses the word slave 73 times. The New Living Translation uses the word slave 266 times. 266 times. The New International Version uses the word slave 202 times. The English Standard Version uses the word slave 144 times. The Holman Christian Standard Version uses the word slave 344 times. I'm showing you right here on the screen. The New American Standard Version uses the word slave 204 times. We're just going through these new versions here so you can see. The New English Translation 251 times they use the word slave. The Revised Standard Version 158 times they use the word slave in that version now let's look at the real Bible the King James Bible and see how many times the word slave appears in the real Bible as you see the word slave only appears two times in the real Bible the King James Bible two times so let's take a look at the two verses where the word slave is used and see if God is a proponent or an opponent of slavery Okay, here's the verse here, Jeremiah chapter 2. This is what it says, verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Does that sound like God is a proponent of slavery? Doesn't sound like God's a proponent of slavery to me in this verse. Let's check the other verse. Maybe there's something there. Okay, the only other verse in the King James Bible that uses the word slave is Revelation chapter 18. In order to read it in its context, we're going to start at verse 9 and read to verse 14. It says, the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her. And when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no one buyeth their merchandise any more the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thylene wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat, and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and souls of men. Those are the only two times when the word slave is used in the King James Bible. And as I mentioned to you earlier, there is no way you can read a King James Bible and walk away believing that God is a proponent of slavery. You cannot do it but with the fake new Bible versions you can. That's why I've spent over 20 years trying to warn people not to use these new fake so-called modern Bible versions. Let's see what the real Bible has to say concerning this issue of slavery. In Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 we'll put it on the screen for you. It says, He that stealeth a man and sells him or if he be found in his hand he shall surely be put to death. He that stealeth a man and selleth him. If you're gonna steal a man, if you're gonna steal a human being for the purpose of selling them, what are you selling them into? You're either selling them into physical slavery or sexual slavery. My King James Bible says if you do that you are to die. Does that sound to you like a God that's a proponent of slavery or an opponent of slavery? Let's see what else he says here Deuteronomy 24 7. If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel and making merchandise of him or selleth him, then that thief shall die and thou shalt put evil away from among you. Again, God is showing that he strongly disapproves of selling human beings and using them in that manner. So the only way that an atheist can walk away thinking that God is a proponent of slavery is by using the new Bible versions when you see how many times they've used the word slave in these new Bible versions. Now you'll notice in his video, he puts up there some Bible verses. So we're going to take a look at these verses that he puts up there on the screen and we're going to read them from the real Bible, the King James, and we're going to see if these verses are promoting slavery or not promoting slavery. And what we're going to do is we're going to read them in their context because they're pointing you to specific verses. It's called cherry picking. They cherry pick the Bible. Finding a verse here, a verse there, a verse way over here, a verse way over here. And they string them all together and say, see, that Bible is no good. Rather than reading it in its entirety in context so you can understand what's really going on. So he points you out to Exodus chapter 21, verse 20 to 21. This is what those verses say. Verses 20 and 21 says, If a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod, and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished. Notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. That's what the verses say. Now what he ignores is verse number 1 to 3 of the same chapter. You see, verse number 1 to 3 puts the context in so that you can know what's being talked about. So let's read verses 1 to 3 of Exodus chapter 21 so that we can understand the context of what's going on. Exodus chapter 21 verses 1 to 3 says this, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy a Hebrew servant six years, he shall serve and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing if he come by himself he shall go out by himself if he were married then his wife shall go out with him notice it said in verse 1 actually verse 2 if thou buy a Hebrew servant They're not talking about Gentiles. As I mentioned in video number one, the atheist is quick to run to the book of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus to try to accuse God of being evil and mean when they don't understand that these books are books of the Jewish law, books written to the Jews at that time for what they were going through. These were not for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, it was written for the Jews. You'll see in the picture that he presents in his presentation, what does he have? Two white men and a black man. A black man as the slave. Completely missing what the Bible is saying here. They're talking about this happening within the Jewish community. Buying one of the Hebrew brethren. Now, you might say, wait a minute, isn't slavery, slavery? Wait a minute, you're you're completely missing the boat. In those days, people would sell themselves, in many cases, for several reasons, and the Bible talks about that. Let me give you one. If a person had a debt, a debt that he needed to pay, he didn't have the money, he would sell himself to the person that he owed for a period of time until he worked off the amount that he owed. Let me show you this in the Bible. Matthew eighteen, twenty-three to 25. Therefore the kingdom of heaven likened unto a king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. And for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Sometimes people would be sold in order to pay their debts off. Once their debt is paid off, then they're free again. That's how it was back then. There was another way that a person would sell themselves temporarily as a servant for somebody. And that is if they wanted to marry their daughter. They would want to show their worth by working for the father in order to get his daughter. You read about that in Genesis 29, 15 to 20, where Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. So he offered to be the servant of Laban, Rachel's dad, for seven years. But Rachel's dad took advantage of him. And after he had worked for seven years, when he thought he was finally going to get his Rachel, they have the party and the celebration and everything. And it's at night and he goes into his tent and he thinks it's Rachel in there and it's not it's Rachel's ugly sister they had switched on him and when he woke up the next morning and realized that it was Rachel's sister and not Rachel he was very angry and Laban said hey work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel so in those days they would sell themselves out as servants whether it be for a debt or whether it be for marriage that's just how they did back then but when you present the video in the way that the atheists did where they got two white guys and a black guy being sold that's not even what's being talked about here it completely changes the context because they ignored verses 1 to 3. The words of the Lord are pure words you don't cherry-pick them to try to come to your own conclusions on things it explains itself And it's very sad that so many people have been turned away from this King James Bible because of antics like this that are used by atheists. It's very frustrating. They'll take the Bible out of context. They'll cherry pick verses to try to get you to see things the way they want to see it. My recommendation for you, whenever somebody comes to you quoting a verse here or there trying to get you to see their way, you go and get yourself a King James Bible and read the whole chapter. In some cases, read the chapter before, the chapter they're quoting from, and the chapter after it to get the full context of what's really going on. Because oftentimes you're going to find that what they say the Bible says and what the King James Bible actually says are two completely different things. The other verse that he quotes here is Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 and 20 20 through 24. This is what it says in the King James Bible. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Again, it's servants, not slaves. They'll want you to believe they're talking about slaves here. But as I mentioned, if you have a job, you are a servant. They may call it master here. Today we'll call it a boss. And he's saying, just do your work heartily as unto the Lord, not with eye service, not just looking like you're working hard, but you're floundering around, but you work as if you're working for the Lord. Completely different than what they're presenting, isn't it? Let's look at the other verse they quote, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ." Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, not unto men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So again he's spelling it out that if you're going to work do it heartily as unto the Lord, do it as servants of Christ and then he turns around and tells the masters or the bosses you are to operate in the same manner don't be threatening people don't be threatening them you are under obligation because you have a Lord that's over you just like you as the boss is over the employees Jesus Christ is over you. You think you're going to run the employees over? You're going to answer to Jesus for it. When you look at it from its perspective, it all makes sense. Not talking about, you hear the word slave in here anywhere? You don't hear the word slave in here nowhere. We're talking about servants. And I mentioned to you earlier about the difference between servants and slaves. He puts the master under the same category as the servant. not so when you look at the modern-day view of a slave and a master the Bible puts it all in perspective the master or the boss is not to overrun the servant or the employees or he'll have to answer to Christ the servant is to work as if he's working for Christ the master is to obey as if he is obeying Christ He's to treat his employee as if he's working for Christ has nothing to do with slaves whipping backs and being a proponent of slavery and when you get yourself a King James Bible you cannot use this book and walk away believing that God is a proponent of slavery it just is not in here you need to get yourself a King James Bible if you're an atheist and you're really thinking that God's a proponent of slavery you need to get yourself a King James Bible read the Bible in its context and don't cherry pick it and you'll find out that this God, of this King James Bible, is very much against slavery. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus came to set us free. He didn't come to make us slaves as the new Bibles present. It's completely different. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25 is another one that they quote here. So let's see what it says.
2: Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king, as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using, your, liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all, men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. servants be, subject to, your, masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this, is, thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory, is it, if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well, and suffer, for it, ye take it patiently, this, is, acceptable with God for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed, himself, to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, Should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls.
0: Again, when you read it in its context, it has nothing to do with slaves. It's talking about, again, the headships, governors, kings, submit yourself to the king, submit yourself to the authorities. It talks about the servants, how they're to be treated. It putting everything in the proper perspective of how people are to be treated when it comes to this kind of a hierarchy. Do we live under kings today? No. But we do live under governments and presidents and Congress and governors and mayors and bosses. So we put it in our perspective as to what it's trying to tell us here. Be subservient to the higher authorities, as you would to Christ. And that brings honor to the Lord. Nothing wrong there, no heavy lifting, and nothing about slavery or God being a proponent of slavery. I don't get it, guys. The only way they can come to that conclusion is by reading the new versions. But you're not going to come to that conclusion that God is a proponent of slavery reading the King James So you need to get yourself King James Bible. That'll solve it for you. Start reading it, believing what it says. Don't cherry pick it. Take it for what it says. And you'll get the answer that you need. And you'll see God for who he really is. Now let's go on to your next question.
1: Question six. Why do bad things happen to good people? It makes no
0: sense. You've created an exotic excuse on God's behalf to rationalize it. Now his next question is, why does bad things happen to good people? Remember I told you the questions get weaker as they go on? Let me show you why this question is a non-question, a question not even worthy of an answer. The question is designed in such a way as to lead you to believe that the reason why something bad happened is because God made it happen. Isn't that the obvious conclusion? But here's the thing that I find very frustrating the Bible says in Proverbs 11 1 a false balance is an abomination to the Lord but a just weight is his delight we've all seen the pictures of the lady with the blindfold holding out the balances of justice the Bible says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord and what the atheist does to God is they puts him on a false balance the way it works is this way if something good happens We lift our hands in the air and we do our fist pump and we do our dance and we sing our song and we talk about how great we are as human beings and the great accomplishment that we made. When something bad happens, we point our fists at the sky and say, why God, why? Why did you do this? That's a false balance. Why doesn't God get praise when good things happen? Why does he only get the blame when bad things happen? It's a false balance. Another thing that makes this question null and void is that there's too many unanswered questions in the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Okay. Who are the good people you're talking about? Give me some names. No names given. They want you to insert names. No, you're asking the question. You tell me. Who are the good people you're talking about? And what's the bad thing that happened to them? And what's your proof that God made that bad thing happen to them? Then we can answer your question. But until you can give me proof that God made something bad happen to them, that's a whole different story. A whole different story there. You have no proof that God made this stuff happen. If somebody trips and falls and breaks their leg, is that God's fault? If somebody gets injured on the job, is that God's fault? Did God make that happen? Somebody gets in a car accident, is it God's fault? Somebody catches the disease, is it God's fault? If so, how? Show me what he did to make this happen. You see, it's too many open questions within the question that makes this whole question null and void. Because they don't have a balanced playing field, they automatically blame God when things go wrong and praise themselves when things go right. That's an uneven balance. And it's a question that's not even worth taking the time to try to answer because it's based on a false pretense that God is making these bad things happen. Next question.
1: Question seven. Why didn't any of Jesus' miracles in the Bible leave behind any evidence? It's very strange,
0: isn't it? you've created an excuse to rationalize it now this next one is one I've been waiting for I love questions like this because what I want to do is guys sit back grab yourself a lemon iced tea like I do and relax a little bit because we're gonna have some fun I love this. For those of you who watched video number one, you knew when I got to the science part I was going to have some fun and that's where the most fun of the video was where I was showing you all these things that are mentioned in my King James Bible that deals with science that the atheist didn't even know was in here. Quantum physics, atoms, all kinds of stuff, wind cycle, water cycle, all these other things that are mentioned in the King James Bible they didn't even know was in there. Well here we go guys. His question is why aren't there any miracles left behind? (laughs) Uh, This question is arrived at because the atheist doesn't know who Jesus is. They don't know who he is. They think Jesus began in a manger in Bethlehem and they don't understand that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament that was doing all of those miracles for the children of Israel and for the prophets. The Bible says twice no man has seen God at any time. Yet all through the Old Testament God shows up over and over and over and over again. He showed up to Adam and Eve. He showed up to Solomon, David, Isaiah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, just to name a few. In Exodus chapter 6, he said, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you going to call him a liar? So if the Bible said no man has seen God any time, yet God is appearing all throughout the Old Testament, then there must be more to God than you and I understand. That's why we Christians have a teaching that we call the Trinity. The King James Bible calls it the Godhead and in the King James Bible it explains it in 1st John chapter 5 verse 7 for there are three that bear record in heaven the Father the Word and the Holy Ghost and these three are one and verse 8 there are three that bear witness on earth the Spirit the blood and the water and these three agree in one it says in heaven the Father the Word and the Holy Ghost are one remember I warned you earlier about these new Bible versions and how they destroy the Bible You'll see if you look into any of these new Bible versions, 1 John chapter 5 verse 7, they took out the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. They completely took it out. Completely took it out. And they took verse 8, the Spirit, the blood, and the water, and they put that in its place. They took out the reference that one is talking about in heaven and the other is talking about on earth. They completely took that out because they don't want you to know the true nature of God and they'll put in a footnote the earliest manuscripts don't contain this that's a lie that's a lie the Catholic manuscripts don't contain it what I want to do with this video series is I not only want to reach atheists but I know many atheists they're not going to change no matter how many questions I answer I know many of them are not going to change and for them it's not really about not believing in God it's they enjoy their lifestyle and they don't want to be accountable to a higher power So believing in God is considered a a problem for many of them. They don't want to believe that there is a higher power they have to answer to. So they'll just choose to ignore that he exists. And they're rolling the dice that he doesn't exist. But you see, I realize I can't reach most of them. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to take those of you who are wondering. The stories in this Bible... Some of them sound unbelievable, but does that mean they're untrue? The archaeologists have been very busy overseas digging up things, and they would use this Bible as their map, because there's so many things in this Bible that tells you where places are located back then. And it's amazing that the archaeologists began to go digging and the places where this King James Bible says places are located and they're finding the ruins they're finding these ancient cities that have been buried they're finding artifacts and fragments they're finding the evidence that the stories that are mentioned in this King James Bible even though it sounds unbelievable many of these stories are written by eyewitnesses we gotta remember that Many of these stories are written by eyewitnesses to the events. It's easy for us to say it didn't happen. We weren't there. They were there. They wrote it down, and not only did they write it down, but they made sure that it was preserved for all generations so that we, thousands of years later, are still able to read about what happened to them there. And if we doubt what happens, we send the archaeologists over there with the shovels, and they begin to verify, yes, indeed, this did happen. So I want to build the faith of my Christian brothers and sisters out there. And I'm going to let you know, you're not going to be able to find this stuff in the new versions because they're translated from the wrong manuscripts. The King James Bible is the only one in English that's translated from the Jewish, correct Jewish manuscripts. The only one. You're not going to get better than this. The new Bible versions are translated from the Catholic manuscripts, which have radically changed what those manuscripts were supposed to say. They left out a bunch of stuff, they threw in a bunch of stuff, and when you follow them, you get lost. You can't figure out what's going on anymore. But with this King James Bible, it's translated from the copies of those manuscripts that traces back to the original, and we can be certain that we can trust what's here, mainly based upon the stuff you're about to see. I want to build your faith by showing you evidence. The atheist says, why aren't there no miracles left behind? They don't understand jesus christ is the god of the old testament did all these miracles and there's a lot that was left behind so i want to show you and help build your faith let's start off first of all with this why is it that every year the jewish people celebrate the passover
3: passover was celebrated every year in early spring It was the main Jewish holiday, celebrating the time in the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Now, the Passover meal was eaten in remembrance of God passing over the houses of those who had sacrificed a lamb and sprinkled its blood on the wooden doorposts and mantles, while the angel of death visited those who had not sprinkled the blood of the lamb. The Hebrew scriptures tell us that the angel of death was the final of 10 plagues that God had sent to save the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Now the theme of the Jewish Passover was remembering the gift of salvation from slavery in Egypt. The Passover lamb was to be perfect and flawless and without blemish. It was to have no bones broken when sacrificed. Those who were covered by the blood of the lamb were saved from the angel of death. Remember when John the baptizer first saw Jesus coming toward him at the Jordan River? He declared, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1:29. It turns out that Jesus' role as the Lamb of God is central to the gospel message. Many believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of centuries of Passovers that had been observed before him. For many scholars the slaying of the Passover lamb in order for the death angel to pass over those who were covered by the blood is the prophetic picture of Jesus.
0: Another thing left behind in the book of Genesis we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some people get very uncomfortable about this story but I'm not here to water down the Bible. I'm here to tell you what it said. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins of these cities, it's not just Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, it's Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain. There were several cities in that location that fell into that same category. Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins that they have done in these places, had risen up to the level where God had to address it. But as you know, when you read the King James Bible all the way through, God does not take pleasure in killing human beings. He doesn't. And when you read the Bible all the way through, as I have, you will learn that before God rains down judgment, he will often give you an opportunity to repent. And this is what he offered to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and others. He came down, he spoke to Abraham, told Abraham what he intended to do. Because of the sins of these cities, they had to be wiped out. Abraham decided that he was going to defend the cities And he asked the Lord, if I find 50 righteous people, would you spare the city? And God said, yeah, I'll spare it for 50. That's the mercy of God. Abraham didn't stop at 50. He kept going down and got all the way down to 10. If I can find 10 righteous people in the city, would you spare it? God says, I'll spare it for 10. That's mercy, folks. He didn't have to spare it at all. So Abraham goes down, and he cannot find ten people in that city that was willing to live a righteous lifestyle. So God sends two angels to a man named Lot, who was one of the prominent men there in the city. Lot went in and tried to find people, and even members of his own family laughed at him. They did not want to believe that God would rain down judgment on them because of their sin. The men of the city saw these two angels go into Lot's house. They didn't know they were angels. They thought they were men. So they came to Lot's house and said, send these men out to us that we may know them. In the King James Bible, to know someone is a sexual term. They were asking for Lot to send these two angels out so that they could have sex with them. Now those of you who know the King James Bible, Genesis chapter 6, that's what ended up happening. The fallen angels came down, the humans began to sexually procreate with them, and the land became so corrupt God had to wipe it out with the great flood in the days of Noah. God was not going to allow this to happen again. If you don't believe that that's what was really going on, just look at what Lot said to the men that were asking that he send these angels out. He says, I have two daughters who have never known a man. I'll send them out. Do to them as you will. Now some of you say, well, that's awful. Yeah, it is awful. But that's where Lot was in his mind and in his heart. It's not right. But it lets you see from the King James Bible what those men were actually asking for. They were not asking him to come out and get to know the guys like brothers. They were asking for sex with these angels. And these angels were having none of it. That's why the cities were destroyed. The angels took Lot, his wife, and his daughters and told them, Leave! Get out of here! And once they left, the Bible says God rained down fire and brimstone from God in heaven, and wiped out the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain, converting these cities into ash. Now you might say, that's a very fanciful story you got there, young man, but what's the proof? When I was growing up, I was told that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and cast into the Dead Sea when I got older and began to think for myself and to research the King James Bible for myself, I discovered that the Bible said that the things that were done to Sodom and Gomorrah were done as an example so that we wouldn't do what they did. We wouldn't do the sin that they did. If he destroyed the cities as an example, why would he destroy it and then cover up the evidence that he did it? they needed to be a visible example for us to see so there were some who said the cities must still be on the ground it must still be where we can see them and they went about looking around the Dead Sea to see if they could find the remains of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and what they found shows you that what this King James Bible says, although it may sound unbelievable to us, the archaeologists are finding out that this book is the best history book ever given to man. When it says there was a city that was destroyed and how it was destroyed, that's how it was destroyed. Let's take a look at the video of people who've gone there and found the city of Sodom. And showing you the proof that this has to be the city. And help build your faith that what the Bible says happened, happened. As the atheists are asking, show us miracles left behind by Jesus. Here's a miracle of a destroyed city. Destroyed with fire and brimstone. At the very location where the Bible said the city was. Converted to ash, just like the Bible said. And brimstone, by the way, is sulfur. So let's take a look at the video and see if the Bible is telling the truth. The
4: Bible tells us the cities were in the plain of Jordan, which is the area surrounding the Dead Sea, and it was once a beautiful lush area. At 1,300 feet below sea level, this is the lowest place on earth, a very hot and desolate region that was cursed by God because of the sins of the people. Flavius Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us There are still the remainders of that divine fire, and the traces of the five cities are still to be seen. Popular thought has it that the cities were later covered by the waters of the Dead Sea, but if Josephus could see the cities in his day, then we should be able to view them also, as the water level has, if anything, receded since his time. Driving along the coastal highway of the Dead Sea in Israel, one can soon see peculiar formations that are of a lighter color than the surrounding terrain. These are the ashen cities, destroyed by the wrath of God. These cities were consumed by intense flames, a supernatural heat that was directed by the hand of God. Today, there is ash that is of lighter color than the surrounding mountains and terrain. As mentioned in the Bible, this is a desolate area where nothing grows. Inspecting the formations closely, one can see structures containing man-made elements, such as 90-degree angles. Even though the buildings were consumed by the fire, the remaining ash in these cities is comprised of a heavier material, due to the inclusion of brimstone or sulfur, and still retains some of the original shapes of man-made structures. Looking down the city streets, one can notice man-made shapes which are not found in nature, Here we see a building with square sides or 90-degree angles. From the opposite side, we can see the same symmetrical structure and man-made angles. We can see the remains of walls that extended outward at 90-degree angles from the main structure. Once again, further evidence of man-made construction. Here we can see square windows that are visible in the walls of the structures, which give us a view of the past. Scanning the city for signs of prior habitation, we can see in the foreground a tower of cylindrical design positioned at the edge of the city. The remains have suffered greatly during 3,500 years of wind and rain erosion. Even still, there is the appearance here of streets and man-made structures.
1: Within these areas are many unusual shapes. These certainly defy attempts to explain their origin by natural causes when examined closely their uniqueness becomes even more apparent. Remarkable shapes can still be seen in the ash such as this Sphinx shape. Here we are standing in the ashen remains of what we believe is Gomorrah and there's this odd singular shape standing up by itself there's nothing anywhere around it it seems to be on a bit of a rise We believe this could have been a sphinx perhaps guarding one of the corners of the city. Entering the remains, one is immediately impressed by the magnitude of them. These were big cities. Prior to the destruction recorded in the Bible, a large population had flourished here for some time before the sudden destruction came. Recent findings reveal just how large that population was. The ancient Canaanites buried their dead, and archaeologists across the valley from this site have found huge Canaanite burial grounds. Conservative estimates put the number of these graves at well over one million. It's full of mountain up high, and it's quite hard. The remains consist largely of calcium sulphate. Calcium sulphate is a by-product when limestone is burnt with sulphur. This is exactly what one would expect to find. Shows up in the ruins as alternating layers of pure calcium sulfate and calcium carbonate with silicates, remains of limestone and other materials used in the construction of these cities. And very much like ash. Whereas the white layers remained fairly hard. Here in the ash and remains of Gomorrah we find Exactly what we'd expect to find if this was indeed an ancient city. We find geometric shapes, such as this tower here, or this ziggurat shape in the background. One of the best evidences, though, is the sulphur balls. And come with us now, we'll show you those right now. Are they all along the same line? Yeah, it looks like it. Yep. A little ball, there's a few there. And they're just sitting in the layers of straight ash. sulfur. The brimstone has been tested and proves to be extremely pure elemental sulfur, combined with small amounts of magnesium.
0: This will be a really nice sample.
1: In fact it's so pure it burns very very easily. As Aaron demonstrates here. Oh, that's strong! <laughs> the fumes it gives off can be overpowering. Whoa! You have to go back to the Bible and check. It. Yeah what would that be? It's in the Bible that there can be an eternal fire, and here is the proof, still burning. The Bible describes five cities that were destroyed. And to the north of the Dead Sea is another of the sites identified by Ron. This one was the city of Adma. Again, the white ashen ruins stand out distinctly from the surrounding desert. This area smells of sulphur, yet there is no geothermal activity here. As with all sites examined, it is far above the Dead Sea, too high to attribute to sedimentary deposits from the lake. And again, symmetrical formations are apparent. For example, these rectangular shapes, which perhaps were once stone blocks. Where's it sulfur you found the big bit? Yeah and brimstone is present in the ash and here charcoal can be found in the ash also Evidence found supports the biblical account of how these sites were destroyed.
0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Zelda here. I'm going to be interrupting the video right here in the middle. The actual length of this video came out to be nearly two hours, and I've been trying to edit it down so that it wouldn't be so long. It still came out to be about an hour and 45 minutes and I didn't want you guys to have to sit here through a long hour 45 minute video so what I decided to do is to break the video up into two parts so here is where I'll end the first video and then we'll resume it on the next one it'll be answering the atheist video number two part B on part B we're going to be uncovering some more things miracles that Jesus left behind in the Old Testament. You're going to see evidence of the Dead Sea Crossing, Mount Sinai, and the artifacts that are still there today that have been verified even by the Saudi government as being authentic. Even though it's Muslim country authenticating Jewish material there in their land by putting a barbed wire fence and a guardhouse in front of Mount Sinai. We're going to be uh, dealing with that getting some information out to you helping to build your faith in Jesus Christ and in this King James Bible that's my bottom line and my goal I know most atheists are not gonna believe no matter how much evidence that I show but the least that I want to do is to be able to present you all with so much evidence to show you that even though in this King James Bible some of the stories may sound unbelievable when you see the archaeological evidence as I've been showing you hopefully it's helping to build your faith um, one of my things I wonder is why is it that pastors ministers and evangelists have not been presenting this information to Christians to let them know what's happening the artifacts the things that the archaeologists are finding how come this information is being suppressed that's what I'd like to know so hopefully this is helping you out and we're gonna get started on video B yeah.